Welcome to Heritage Tree, where we talk about heritage care and development for people and organizations. And now to our host, Dr. Dina Michelle Roscoe. Previous episodes and in my book, especially book two on Kingdom Come about safe love, the green book, what my readers affectionately call them by their colors, it talks about a lot with the accountability needed and to put forward this value of a we story of a gospel heritage what does that even mean how does the gospel make us a heritage and what do we do to protect it and what's powerful is this identity of the good shepherd because we can get to talking about the problems and get excited about them or be triggered and not really think again about the core issue but remember that the lord said in the earlier chapters before chapter 15 in numbers As he's giving them these instructions and the children are wandering the desert, he said, as shepherds, the children whom you said would be devoured by beasts of the field will inherit the promised land, but they will wander as shepherds for 40 years. Now we know King David was a shepherd and referred to in the Psalms and and into the scriptures as a man after God's heart, and I go into this at length in my books and in episodes previously, but we find Jesus many generations later. In the book of John, he goes over many I am statements to identify himself. Now, this is different than just saying that he was the son of God and the son of man. And the the older scriptures, and then also in the beginning of the Gospels, We have some genealogy accounts, and this was, again, with my late grandma. She had Bibles from her mother, so my great-grandmother, who would write down the genealogy of the people in the family that were born or adopted into the family, and who gets those Bibles when they pass. It ends up being that that ends up being way more important in a lot of ways than any other material inheritance because there's an attachment to our family history. Well, what's interesting in the book of John, he his I am statements that Jesus makes, it is not like this Korah rebellion and company where there was no claim or no argument around authority per se. Jesus was reacting to this kind of logic Because here we have in number 16, what is a hint at the pharisaical rage, that pharisaical argument, the religious leaders of Jesus' day often flew into a rage at him because he healed someone they didn't like. He healed a woman or he healed a different, a person of a different ethnicity than they were, or he was popular or he taught better than they did, and he knew something about the law that they just couldn't wrap their minds around. And he says his woes to them in Matthew chapters 23 to 25, he goes into and calls them that you are, he calls them out that you are making people twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves are. They were basically mean men, and yet they were men of renown. So here we have this irony in this world and in this narrative. 
And by our own experiences, we are witnessing with some degree of confusion, how is it that there are people of renown rising to authority positions, which is not necessarily the same as leadership, but we look at that as a signal for leadership. I emphasize in my books that it's not the details, it's the method. And the scriptures say this as, you shall know them by their fruit. Now, let's use a modern day example. Let's say you're on a virtual visit with a doctor, medical doctor of some kind, and they don't let you get a word in edgewise. They ask you a question, you start to answer it, then they interrupt you with more questions. And soon you start to feel your anxiety rise, you start to shake a little. It almost is like they're an attorney (laughs) interrogating you, which is an important detail. It's almost as if they, they don't really see you as an equal anymore. And you start to realize that because then they start yelling at you or they start saying, inciting their experience as reaction to what you just shared. Or they put word curses on you and say that because you didn't do it in their way or you work with someone outside of their discipline or you want a team approach and you as a patient want to be part of that team and communication is important to you and so forth. This person just sort of laughs at that and just keeps going and just basically badgers you for an hour. By the end of that call, you don't know what happened. You're shaking or confused and you weren't really able to get the one detail out to them that you wanted, which would have made a difference in their diagnosis. And you know this because you're intelligent and you spent some time reading about it or you live in your body, so you know what you're experiencing. And so then let's say it was so stressful that it exacerbates your symptoms. And because it exacerbates your symptoms, you start to feel increased anxiety and you start to hear what they're saying taking away your reserves of what little you had, what was available to you to handle this problem that you're living with that already has affected your quality of life and increased your anxiety, increased your social distancing because you have this isolation component now since you are recovering from something you're trying to solve in your body. And they're effectively bruising, hurting an already bruised reed. When their role, their positional authority and training, their oath that they took in this particular example is to help you and do no harm. At least do no harm. If you can't help them, at least do no harm. But because, and this is important, in pride-based systems, scoffing is a norm. In pride-based symptoms, scoffing is mostly socially tolerated. Why do you think that the social media platforms and their algorithms have been a breeding ground, a nest rather, of this vitriol and troll culture? That's because these troll farms latched onto what we were already doing and how we were already as a society in general using that space and how it was designed to be used. Again, positional authority needs to match the method aligning it with 
the goal, with the value, with the personhood, with the reason for that institution to begin with. And if not, then there's disorder. And someone might think that the expert model and their extensive training and experience, and this is the world they live in, warrants and justifies them to badger. We could slip this example over from medical care to marriage and how the institution of marriage has been elevated and in a religious term, idolized by the mainstream dominant culture of the church in the United States, as I've experienced it anecdotally, to the point where it's used as a frame to solve problems rather than the gospel, rather than the, again, accountability put forth in scriptures like Matthew 18, Titus, Jude, Timothy, and even Revelation goes into... What are the parameters? What are the limits that are put on people who profess to know Christ, but Jesus would say, depart from me, I never knew you, because their fruit is that of, in other words, abuse. Using the institution of the church, using the institution of marriage, using the institution of medicine or government, you could fill in any institution, and if you slip scoffing in there, it becomes abuse. And this is not something that I hear enough put forth by the pulpit ministry. I would love and appreciate a chance to train pastoral leaders on this topic because what we need, again, in response to sin, what does it say in Romans? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. So these, these uh, Korah, sons, Korah and Abiram and On and the men of renown, quote unquote, that rose in rebellion because they did not want limits put on them about their sin. They had a scoffing response. In other words, who are you to lead these people? When God was the one that told Moses these things, their reaction was... As Jesus said of his hometown, that a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. Jesus was sent as the son of God and son of man. He had all the positional authority he needed. And I go at length in this in my books and previous episodes of what makes him different. What gives him a right to say uh, in Romans and Acts that only the name of Jesus saves us. Only confessing with our mouth and believing in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord is the first step to repentance. If The first step to living in this gospel heritage story. And this is important. I bring up the I am statements earlier because Jesus called himself the good shepherd. The sheep hear my voice. The sheep know my voice. This is out of the book of John. And then that makes you wonder, whose voice are we listening to in these times? What's your high hand? So these men of renown and this rebellion of Korah, the Korah rebellion, and Dathan and Abiram, they want to come and 
you know, they say we will not come up. Is it a small thing? You brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. So then blame. This is a scoffing tactic as well to blame the person who's trying to solve the problem. The one who is doing the work. And I say that in my books in previous episodes, I describe narcissism, scoffing as really a knee-jerk reaction to work. They don't want to put in the work to relationships, to repentance, to submitting to anybody yielding to God, living for any other purpose. And it's not even clear what their goal is for themselves. We can't really say that they're in it just for themselves because there's not a really clear goal here. Since they don't buy into limits, you could say apples to them one day and not oranges. And they would argue with that and say, no, 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 it's oranges. And then the next day you could say, it's oranges, not apples. And they would argue with that and say, no, no, it's apples. Whatever suits them, there will be disorderliness because they will buy in and agree to something and withdraw that commitment. These are tactics that are disorderly. And remember that self-interest and jealousy is what drives disorderliness as at least is described in scripture. So Moses pleads with God and says, Moses was very angry at the reaction because they blamed him. So he did not bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey. The people that Moses sent in the 12 spies, 10 out of 12 of them said, no, don't go. And the people went along with it because they were scared. So we can safely presume that these men didn't go along with it. So they are reversing their conduct. They are blaming him for their misconduct. Projection is maladaptive. It is when people put on you something that they are doing. And if you are that dog getting poked with a stick, but if you are that creature being poked with a stick and you're eventually going to, possibly wonder, what are you doing wrong? This is how the mind works. This day, I was lapping up my milk or my water or my dog food. (laughs) This day, I was, you know, chasing a rabbit. Maybe I shouldn't chase rabbits anymore. This day, I was running in the backyard playing catch, catching, maybe I shouldn't do that anymore. Is that bad? You start to doubt good things. And you will also start to fear them. If you are around a scoffer long enough, you will start to fear good things because soon enough, there will be a reactivity to you and it will be arbitrary and it will be manipulative and it will be putting on you whatever their grievance is, which they will not tell you honestly. I follow the logic in my book and it traces almost to this ex nihilo, which you know, God created the world out of nothing, which he also created the angels, including Satan. But he didn't force his own choice on them. God did not project on them. He allowed Satan to make his own choice and take a third of the angels with him and rebel against God. So this was no surprise to God, the Korah rebellion. He'd seen this before. Korah and company, he'd seen this before. This is a satanic tactic. And it isn't a a democratic protest that's happening here. So I am not by any means saying that we shouldn't protest. This was a scoffing attempt. This is a, a 
team, a group rather of people who despise limits. They don't want to do any other thing. They don't want to go help with the problem. And yet let's argue about whether or not Christmas is on coffee cups. Let's say we're pro-life, but be okay with being racist (laughs) or sexist. These are hard things. They're trigger words, right? And in my books, I go into great length at nuance, at not triggering people, at being gentle and diplomatic. And there's a time and place to say, here in this verse, Moses was very angry. So if you're around scoffers a lot, get used to feeling angry a lot. Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. He did nothing wrong. They chose as a people to forsake God's command, to not believe God's good intentions for them in the promised land. They chose to forsake his way. And they were suffering because of that. And now they have all these rules. Now they have all these laws and guidelines. Well, you know, the positive solutions-based approach of this was God was giving them new archetypes. He was giving them new mind maps, mental pictures of life. He was giving them productive things to do with their hands. And a compassionate person needs to treat animals right. And in Genesis 1 to 3, you know, God made the world. And their number one job as the first couple was to take care of the garden and walk with God. That's it. So here we have, fast forward many generations, people of Israel wandering the desert. And what do they have to live for? They, and so let's just fight. <laughs> but it's so ironic because Moses was a meek man, yet they were scared of giants and they didn't want to fight the giants. But who did later? King David, once a shepherd boy who was anointed by God as the king of Israel And this was in, of course, the reign of Saul, and Saul was screwing up, so God chose King David. Saul was handsome and a head above, a man of renown by all appearances, and God anoints him as king of Israel. You can read about these accounts in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, versus 2nd Chronicles, and all the kingly accounts. It's incredible. And King David, as a child, goes to feed his brothers, Here we go. His brothers who are on the field, the battlefield. Everybody's scared. Nobody wants to fight Goliath, this big giant of the Philistines who's taunting them every day. And the king is in his tent. He's not going out to fight. He has armor. He has positional authority, but he wouldn't use it to deliver his people. And he was a frightened man, a cowardly man who would hide behind the baggage But here comes this child king, David, shepherd boy, whom his brothers mock and criticize, another tactic of scoffing. But listen, he is of the royal line, and he takes a rock, five of them, five smooth stones. And it's funny because he comes, and Saul wants him to put on the armor. It doesn't fit. Another man's positional authority or renown will not fit you, especially if it's not called or commissioned by God, especially if that person is not walking in a way of leadership that is honorable or worth following. So David says, no, 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 I'm just going to go out there with my 
clothes, my shepherd clothes. I'm used to this, you know, all the moms wearing yoga pants right now, solidarity. But for real, it's, you're in the trenches, you're in the field, you're doing the work, you're doing the daily caregiving, you're doing the messy work, the protecting. It doesn't look pretty. It's not tidy. And he goes out there with five stones, not just one. You know the story. Don't mock God. God will help me win this battle. It's not my battle to win. It's his. Now, who had the right positional authority? King David was empowered because he recognized the right positional authority of God. He takes one stone, hits his mark, the giant falls, and they're saved for a day, right? And I talk about this in previous episodes. By the way, the people were being gambled as slaves, so whoever won got to enslave the other group. So some things just don't change. Again, it's the method of ostracism versus a heritage, a gospel heritage, a we story, and the we story recognizes proper headship. We'll get into that in the next episode. Thank you for listening. Let me pray. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for how good you are. Thank you that you are God good and amazing and powerful all the time. And I pray that you help us yield under that and find our power and our renown in a good and healthy way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard, tip us at the link below and inquire, subscribe, and shop our merchandise label of Heritage Tree and Heritage at dinamichellerosco.com and dogwoodgroup.io. Come back again when we gather around the Heritage Tree.